We're continuing our series, uh, Lent series, looking at the Gospel of Luke, select passages moving through Jesus' life. In Luke chapter 20, it's actually after Jesus has already entered Jerusalem in the final week of his life. So we're a little bit ahead, actually, of Palm Sunday in the text we're going to look at next week. Uh, It's probably not anyone's favorite parable that we're going to look at this week. And yet, it's interesting, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you notice the parables move around. They're told in different spots in different Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in all three of those Gospels, this parable of the wicked tenants, as my Bible heading calls it, is told right at the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. And in fact, I'm going to argue that by this parable, Jesus is interpreting for his disciples everything that's going to happen that week. It kind of pulls a lot of things as I read aloud Luke 21 through 19, and then we'll reflect on it. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, They did not know where it came from. Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. While the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. This is God's word. This episode begins with Jesus in the temple preaching the gospel. Surely nothing objectionable in that, that he's teaching and preaching in the temple. And yet the temple leadership comes to him, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and they challenge him, saying, by what authority do you do this? 
And in this first interchange, Jesus' question back, I Jesus takes questions, but not excuses. Jesus takes questions, but not excuses. Jesus takes all over Luke why do you eat it? I don't hear that fast and chance. He answers questions. He's asked questions about his identity. John the Baptist says, are you the one to come? He's asked various questions about theology. People come to him and ask, what must I do? Two times in Luke's gospel, what eternal life? Uh, his disciples, the Pharisees ask him, how will we know when the kingdom of God comes? Jesus even takes dumb questions in the gospel of Luke and asks, answers them. His disciples are going to ask him in chapter 2 a little bit later. The kingdom of God should be dating Jesus' death. Jesus often doesn't answer these questions in a straightforward manner. Sometimes his answers can be perplexing or raise new questions. But he takes questions. He's not offended. People asking could be used as a way or an aid Jesus' authority. The temple leader's question here may seem harmless. There's a new teacher or preacher who's preaching in the temple, and they say, whose authority are you doing this on? It may seem these motives. Just in the end of chapter 19, right before our passage, we read, Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priest and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do were hanging on his words. All right, Jesus is not being paranoid here to perceive some hidden agenda in their question. Indeed, they are seeking to destroy him. And so Jesus answers question with question. But he's not to ask a question. No, John, his question's about John the Baptist. And John comes preparing the way. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's preparing the way for the one who will come. Indeed, for Jesus. And so their response to John the Baptist is a bit of a barometer for how they will respond. They have to be well to his own claims. They're not going to be positioned well to respond to Jesus. So it's actually a telling question that Jesus is asking here. Well, the temple leaders discuss amongst themselves. If we say from heaven, he's just going to ask, why didn't you believe him then? But if we say his authority was from men, the people are going to stone us because they're all convinced he was a prophet. They recognize they're stuck on the horns of a dilemma. Neither answer is great, at least for them. What's disturbing, though, is do you see how pragmatic their reasoning is? They're not at all concerned with the facts of the matter, whether John indeed did preach, you know, his preaching was sent from heaven or from earth. Rather, they're simply concerned with the effects that their answer might have. If we answer from heaven, we're going to look stupid. If we answer from men, the people are going to stone us. Their reasoning here is entirely pragmatic. So they answer, they don't know. And I think we see at work here the principle that Jesus teaches a number of times. Uh, uh, to those uh, who have, more will be given. To those who don't, it will be taken away. Okay, they can't even answer about John the Baptist. And so knowing anything about Jesus is taken away. He says, I won't tell you. Now I want to pause here for a moment. Jesus takes questions, but not excuses. Honest questions about Jesus are okay. Indeed, they're welcome. You don't have to pretend like you don't have questions to come to church. Questions aren't the opposite of faith. For example, you try that airplanes fly, so book of faith. 
And yet you still might have all sorts of questions about how the engine of the airplane works, about aerodynamics, about the pilot's training, all sorts of questions. Perfectly reasonable questions. But it doesn't mean you don't trust that airline travel is generally wise. We can trust this and still have questions uh, trying to understand better who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so questions are welcome. Jesus takes questions. And questions should be welcome in church, uh, particularly when you bring your about Jesus. What questions can become as questions are screen for an under, sometimes a smoke screen for an underlying issue, the issue of Jesus' authority. And so someone says, well, I have questions about Jesus, and so therefore, answered. To be honest with ourselves, do we have honest questions? Or are we using our questions as a way to evade Jesus' claim to authority? Well, the temple leader's question is relevant, even if he's not going to answer them directly. Uh, and Jesus, remember, he's teaching or preaching to this large crowd, and so he addresses them directly with this parable. Now, as I mentioned, I don't think it's favorite parable. If I'm wrong, come tell me after service. Uh, it's a bit of a troubling parable, if we're honest. But what I want you to see in this parable is a second truth Jesus is teaching here. It's a little bit longer, but please come here. God so loved, he sent his beloved son. That's the point of this parable. God so loved the world that he sent his beloved son. It's clear that Jesus has been meditating on what will happen last week when he comes to Jerusalem. He's been reflecting on how his mission will end in light of scripture, in light of what the prophets have taught, in light of what's likely to happen. This parable he tells, he draws back. Uh, this was not an uncommon thing to let out a field, just as it's not an uncommon thing today. But it's also told against the backdrop of Scripture. We read earlier in the service at the beginning of our Confession of Sin, Isaiah 5, and Jesus is telling, or, or I should say retelling, the same parable about God planting a vineyard. Remember Isaiah 5, My beloved had a vineyard. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. It's a common image in the Old Testament. So God is you bought a vine out of Egypt. And it took root and filled the, the land. In both Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80, the vineyard ultimately produced the effort given over to wild animals. Okay, Jesus is telling his own version of a familiar parable about God and his vineyard. But Jesus' version is more complex with added characters. It's not just the, 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 the gardener or the owner and the vineyard, but now we have these added tenants. Okay, a man plants a vineyard, and then he leases it, out, leases it out to tenant farmers, and he goes abroad and then sends servants in due course to collect his share of the produce. We can imagine this sort of scenario, a similar set up business, and in due course you decide you're ready to retire, and instead of trying to sell your business, you say to a young man, I'm going to give you my business, all the equipment, the trucks, uh, the contacts, everything, all the, all the stuff, and just occasionally send me a check down in Arizona, a cut of the profits. Okay? Well, not this owner. The owner says, I will send my beloved son. Surely he will be respected. Surely they'll respond to him. Surely at last they will produce the fruit that is expected. But no, the tenants have a scheme. 
Uh, it's the same term used for the temple leaders, actually, discussing amongst themselves. They discuss amongst themselves. They come up with a scheme. Perhaps if we murder the son and get away with it, we hide the body, then the owner will have nothing to do but give us the vineyard. Well, that's their plan, but it's patently absurd. They throw out the son, they kill him, and Jesus puts the question to the people in the temple. Now, what will the vineyard owner do? He will come and put those tenants to death and give the vineyard to others. Remember, Jesus is telling this parable to make a point about his own authority and also to warn his disciples about what's going to happen, how this conflict in Jerusalem will end. We see two sides, actually, to this parable. It reveals Jesus comes with divine authority and to reveal God's mercy. The divine authority. The meaning of this parable is obvious to the crowd, especially the temple leaders, who at the end of our passage this morning want to kill Jesus. As in the Old Testament, the vineyard is Israel, the owner is God. The Old Testament prophets are regularly described as the servants of God, and they're also regularly described as being rejected by God's people. So Jeremiah 7, for example, Jeremiah says, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have consistently sent my servants to the day after me, and here is who were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their necks and killed your prophets who warned them. Okay, it's a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament that the prophets are the servant of God and they are also rejected by the people. Through this parable then, Jesus is depicting himself as coming as the last in a long line of messengers. Okay, prophets have been being sent to Israel for over a thousand years and now comes... Jesus. But he's something more. He's categorically different than the prophets that have been sent before. In terms of the parable, before have come servants, now comes the beloved son. He comes with the authority of the father himself. And so Jesus is saying, you ask what authority I come with? I am the beloved son. I come with divine authority. But we also see in this parable divine mercy. At least for me, I jump to the end and I see these vineyard, uh, the tenants being destroyed and, and it being handed over to other people. And it sounds quite judgmental, uh, strict. I think that doesn't sound great. But if we stop and think about it, God is depicted as an absurdly optimistic vineyard owner who sends servant after servant and finally his son hoping to get some fruit from this vineyard. It's really a parable about God's patience, about his mercy that he keeps sending messenger after messenger to try and draw his people back. And so this is the second point Jesus is making in this parable. Not only does the Son come with divine authority, but the Son comes as proof that God loves his people. Indeed, God so loved his people that he sent his beloved son to call them back. He's the climax. He's the final appeal. And so to reject him means destruction. Now this parable has been read in the Christian rejection of the Jews and their replacement by Gentiles. But that can't be right. 
After all, as we've seen throughout the Old Testament when this imagery is used, the vineyard is Israel. It is the Jewish people. So it can't be that they're being rejected full stop, but rather by clearing out the temple, by preaching good news in the temple, Jesus is, as one commentator put it, attempting to reorient Israel around the redemptive purpose of God. This purpose is resisted by the temple leadership, and the consequence of their defiance is their own destruction and the transfer of leadership to others, Jesus and his apostles. Okay, the parable is saying these leaders, by rejecting Jesus, are going to be rejected and are going to replace them. It's an attempt to reorient Israel, not reject Israel, to reorient Israel around Jesus himself. Well, parables can only do so much, and this parable ends with the son being killed and the vineyard being turned over to new tenants. Parables can only do so much. And so Jesus concludes with a series of scripture quotations and allusions. And here I want you to see in verses 17 and 18, Jesus' story doesn't end Jesus' story doesn't end with his death. The last breath is usually the end of a character's story. After all, what more is there to say? But it's not a story that I'm to say. Now, he makes the link by way of a pun in Hebrew that we unfortunately just don't hear in English. In Hebrew, the word for son is ben. So Benjamin is son of my right hand, is ben, son. And the word for stone. Ben Eben. There's a, there's a pun going on here. The rejected son, the rejected stone. It's a little bit close in English, but not quite there. And so when Jesus is making, going on to these scripture quotations, he's making a pun tying these things together. He says the rejected stone, or rejected stone, it's all fresh on everybody's minds because this is what Jesus' disciples quote when he enters Jerusalem just the day before. They quote, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This word here that they rejected it, it's not they just out of hand they rejected it, but rather it's been tried and doesn't seem to work. Okay? These builders have a plan, a building plan, a project in mind. They fit the stone here, they fit the stone there. It just doesn't quite fit anywhere. And so they chuck out the stone on the rubble heap. But, Psalm 118 says, this stone that's rejected actually becomes the cornerstone. The end. The stone doesn't the builder's project, but it is central to God's project. There's a warning here. If you try and fit Jesus into your building project, into your plan, you'll find he doesn't quite fit. And either you're going to ask about Jesus. We think of our lives as potato head toy. You take out these ears, put in those ears, change out this nose, that. And we think of Jesus like that. He's a sort of hat that you might plug into Mr. Potato Head. I'm going to plug in the Jesus hat. Someone else might plug in the Buddha hat or the Allah hat or you know, whatever else. No hat. There's one aspect that you can build out your identity however you want your character. If that's your conception of Jesus, you'll find eventually, sooner or later, that he doesn't fit with your plans. At least not. plans. Jesus fitted into your project, you need to be fitted into his project. Then verse 18 is a biblical allusion. These would not be either or out of Revelation. The first part of verse 18 is in Isaiah 8, uh, Isaiah says, Don't call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. 
But Lord of him, let him be your fear and your dread. He shall become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. Many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken. Okay, and that citation from I, or allusion to Isaiah there, uh, uh, the text Jesus is alluding to says, God himself will be a stone. And as a stone, he will either be a sanctuary where you can be protected, or he's going to be a stumbling stone. Okay, so if you come to him looking for protection, you'll find it. But if you're running off on your own path, you're going to trip over him, fall, and be broken. Again, Jesus comes to show God's mercy, but if he's rejected, people will stumble over him and they will ultimately be broken. And then the second part of verse 18, when it falls on anyone, it will crush him, alludes back to Daniel chapter 2. And I'll just summarize Daniel 2, not read it, uh, don't worry. But in, in, in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a of a shoe, and gold on top, and silver, and iron, and then the feet made of iron and clay. And then a stone that's not cut out by human hands falls on that statue and shatters the statue into pieces. And in fact, grinds it up into fine dust so the statue is scattered to the wind. And then the stone somehow fills up the entire earth. Okay, well, the same thing here. Any, when the stone falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is alluding back to Daniel 2 there. Well, that vision in Daniel 2 is saying there's going to be these kingdoms and fall, but eventually God himself, uh, uh, as Daniel puts it, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms that it falls on. So Jesus is doing... Um, uh, uh, so he's doing Isaiah 8, Daniel 2, and he's putting them all together in this dense little passage, applying it to himself. He's saying, I'm the stone that was rejected, or uh, the son that was rejected. The, the leaders are going to reject, they will, but that's not the end of my story. The son that's rejected is also the stone that's rejected, which becomes the cornerstone that you can either flee to for a sanctuary or stumble over and be crushed. It's the stone that will come higher and raise all the other kingdoms. Jesus is saying here at this very end with all these scripture passages that his story doesn't end with his death. The rejected son becomes the cornerstone of something new that God is doing. How does that work out? Well, we've got to follow Luke's story. We've got to keep following It's a challenge to the temple leadership, but it's equally a challenge to us. Jesus welcomes questions. It's okay to have questions about Jesus. But not if those questions excuse authority and his claim excuse to authority. Jesus here is God's son. He sent many messengers. The Old Testament is full of them. But here at last, he sends his own beloved son to try and draw us back. He comes with God's own authority as proof of God's mercy, that God so loved the world that he sent his beloved son. But Jesus... The sun, the stone, can't be slotted into our project. He is the cornerstone of God's building project. If we try and make him fit into our schemes, we'll end up rejecting him, and it will lead to You've got to either line up with him, or you'll stumble or be crushed. Jesus' story doesn't end with the rejection and death of the sun. That's just the beginning, the beginning of the good news. Let's pray. Jesus, we see in your work the proof of God's mercy.
that you warned even those who would scheme together to have you put to death, you warned them that it would ultimately lead to their own destruction. Indeed, you plead with them. We thank you for the heart that not reject the Son who comes. In the name of the Father, let us not reject the stone that is the cornerstone of God's kingdom. Instead, by your Spirit, be softening our hearts that we would be receptive to the coming Son. Fit us into your project. Shape us so that we might be a piece of your kingdom. Lord, there's some here who have questions about Jesus and have never made a firm commitment. I ask that by your Spirit this morning, you would be giving them trust, faith, that they would indeed believe in Jesus, even as they ask questions about him. Let us, Lord, believe you our own sins. Let us, Lord, be oriented on Jesus, that we might be fit into your building project. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your warnings. Give us ears to heed them. Amen.